Um, I was thinking this week, as I was preparing this message, this, this series is called The Untouchables, things we don't normally talk about in church, subjects we usually gloss over and don't dive into because they're weird and uncomfortable. Um, and I was thinking about this, and, and a story popped in my head that I hadn't thought about in 20 years. Does anybody have a restaurant that they would go to in college that you don't go to anymore? Anybody have one like that? A few of you? Y'all aren't old enough to be in college, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> well, there was one I remember from college. It's in Dallas. Uh, it's in Grand Prairie, actually. Uh, it's a restaurant called Tons Mongolian. I bet you most of you have never heard of Tons Mongolian. Uh, it's, it's in the similar style of like a Genghis Grill. Some of you may have been to like a Genghis Grill. Uh, the idea is uh, they have this big old grill, gr- almost like a griddle, big circular grill in the middle of the restaurant. And you're supposed to go when you get there. At Tons, it's unique. They, they have this long buffet, and it's all you can eat. So it was the ideal situation for a college kid. And it was eight, back then, it was $8. I still remember. Eight bucks, you could go all you can eat. And so when we would go to Tons, because it's all you can eat, uh, you would prepare. You would be all kinds of preparing. You wouldn't eat dinner the night before, or you would eat very light. You would definitely not eat breakfast that morning. So when you showed up to Tons, you were ready, ready to suck down everything they had. Because when you would go get in line at Tons, you would get two bowls. And in one bowl, you would fill it with every kind of meat you can imagine. They had beef, they had chicken, they had fish, they had shrimp, they had crab. Uh, they had it all lined up there. And uh, you would, and other meats that I probably can't remember at the moment, but that's all the ones I can remember. And I, the way I worked is I would put every meat in the bowl, every one they had, pork, it was, it was all going in the bowl. They had steak, put that in the bowl. And then uh, they had a, a section for vegetables. I didn't really go to that section. Uh, I eat vegetables now, but I didn't so much back then. I would just fill it up with meat. And then in the other bowl, you would put your carb. They had uh, rice, they had uh, noodles. And so you would fill up the other bowl. And, and I know it was all you can eat, but the way my, me and my friends operated is we still tried to get the most out of it. And we would fill the bowls to overflowing. And then we would go up to the grill and you would hand your bowls to the grill master. That was his title on his little name card. And he would take your bowls and he would dump them on the grill. And he lined them up all the way around. He would, he would dump your stuff here, the next guy's stuff right next to yours, the next guy's stuff right next to yours. But the way it would work, there weren't partitions. So inevitably, we hope you liked what the guy behind you got because you were going to get some of it in yours. And so he would, he would put it there and he would grill it all up. And they would end up putting it in a bigger bowl and they would bring it out uh, to your table for you, and then you would, you know, gorge yourself on tons, and uh, all, all the sauces you can think of they had in varying degrees of hotness, and, and they would bring it to you at the table, and then you would uh, consume it all, and I don't know how you eat Asian food, but I, I always eat with chopsticks, and I would suck it down with chopsticks, and then I would go back for the second round, and, and you, if you were inexperienced at tons, you would load up the bowls as much as you did the first time, uh, but knowing full well, having been multiple times, is if you loaded it up as much as you did the first time, there's no way you're consuming all that. You got to give your stomach time to, you know, expand a little bit. You got to stretch it out. And, and so you would go back a second time and you'd put some in there and you'd get that. But the, the cherry on top of the whole deal is you would get done and they're watching you like a hawk for when you get done. And they would bring you out complimentary ice cream at the end of the meal. And so you know you got to save just a little bit for the ice cream. And they'd bring out the ice cream, and then you would waddle up, and you'd pay for the food, and you would go home. Well, me and my friends had a plan this, this one week. We didn't go every week to Tons. 
uh, because we all had meal plans our parents paid for and at college and we would go and we would eat all the food in the cafeteria uh, or the dining hall and well the way my school worked is there was always one meal a week that they did not have food in the cafeteria and uh, typically the way that would work is I would go on the weekends and I'd do laundry at my my grandparents house which meant my grandmother would do my laundry and uh and we would watch college football on Saturday afternoons, and then my granddad would get DiGiorno pizzas for dinner, and uh, we would eat those deals, watch the Gaither Gospel Hour, and then I'd go home and have the leftovers for the next day. Well, this week, instead of having those leftovers, we were going to go to Tons. And so I was ready. I was geared up. We're going to Tons, man. And I ate light the night before, barely ate anything for breakfast. You know, I- I'm ready. And uh, this, this week went, lined up, and it was going to be uh, uh, Friday. We were going to Tons. And so I go to class Friday morning with my degree. All, some of those classes that were required were 8, 8 a.m. Friday morning classes. And so I went. And, uh, but then in my next class, some of my buddies were in there that were going to go with me to lunch. They said, hey, Josh, we were just talking. And all of them were in the same 8 o'clock class because they were of a different degree. And I said, we're, we're not going to go to Tons today. We're actually going to go to Subway. And then he ran off. And I'm just like, oh, like, I was like, this has been the highlight of my week. I'm getting geared up for this. And nothing, no knock against Subway. I love Subway. You know, meatball sub, pizza sub, cold cuts combo, chicken teriyaki, however you want it, uh, with the sun chips. You don't get the other one, you get the sun chips. And I, I, I like it. But when you're ready for one thing and they present you with something else, you know, it, it, it's really a letdown. You know what I mean? And so we went to Subway. And we got it and came back to campus. And I'm sitting there eating it. And, you know, it's good, but it's not what I was planning for. You know, my stomach wasn't prepared for Subway. My stomach was not going to be expanded as much from the Subway footlong as it would have been at Tons. I would have had to recover for days having gone to Tons. And I was not ready for just, for just Subway. I was planning to just, you know, gorge myself at Tons. And we got Subway instead. I had been designing my entire week around how my stomach was going to be at the end of the week. And what we're going to look at today is how very often our stomachs can guide our decisions. We're going to be in several passages of Scripture today. You're welcome to flip in all of them if you want to, or you can look at the screens and go ahead and head to Romans chapter 14, where we're going to spend a good chunk of the time in a little bit. Uh, But, you know, the very first sin was initially driven by Eve's stomach. She looked to something other than God to guide her decisions. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. But now look at that verse for a sec. You see, she saw the, the, the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and desired to make one wise. And then she took. The very first thing in that, that line of things that led her to the decision to sin to take the thing that God said don't take, was that, the, food, or that the, the fruit was good for food. It wasn't just that it looked good. It wasn't just that she was desiring to, to be like God, which she was those things. But the first thing in the list was that she saw it was good for food. She was being driven by her stomach initially. Her stomach told her where to go and what to do. And taking direction from our stomachs 
is the beginning of a journey that Paul specifically warns against in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul wrote, For many of whom I have told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destination, or the end, or their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They are enemies of the cross of Christ because the, their God is their belly. And sometimes we unrestrainedly offer sacrifices to that very same God that Paul's speaking about there. We're feeding the thing that God designed to fuel us. Their God is their belly, and they're the enemy of the cross of Christ. This excess, this overindulgence, God calls in Ezekiel uh, chapter 16, verse 49, he calls it the sin of Sodom. This, this excess, this overindulgence. It has a more specific name, gluttony. Gluttony. Now, you know, what's interesting about that is gluttony is really, it's overindulgence. But we overindulge in all kinds of ways, not just food. And I found it funny as I was doing a lot of research on this is overindulgence in all other areas of our lives don't have a specific name. But overindulging in food does, as though it has a specific stigma tied to it. It's called gluttony. I know that comes up in your conversations frequently, right? Uh, But Scripture has some harsh words to say about that, but very often in in talking about gluttony, it's using it in, in a figurative way, talking about just generally overindulgence in all areas of our lives. And we overindulge, whether it's food or whether it's certain relationships, certain intimate relationships. We overindulge in streaming. We overindulge in conversations about gossip. We overindulge in in, uh, inner negative talk about somebody else. We just let it continue to fester within us. We overindulge in shopping. We overindulge in in, uh, our kids. We overindulge in... Politics, we overindulge in all kinds of ways and all kinds of things. We overindulge in our jobs. We overindulge in all kinds of aspects of our lives. So that's what we're talking about today, overindulgence, planning to indulge in all of these ways. Sometimes, you know, we overindulge in, in, in sports, in our conversation about sports, in the sports of our children, in the sports of guys we watch on TV, we overindulge. Or we indulge in anger and let it slowly fester right under the surface, continuing to poke that fire as we think about things people have done to make us angry and we allow it to fester and be there and we indulge in it relentlessly. Not because necessarily we want to, it's as though the, the desire to indulge is, is built into us. And sometimes it feels like we can't control it because the enemy knows that. And he's relentless in stoking that fire of indulgence. Look at Romans chapter 16, verse 18. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites their own appetites, their own desires, their own bellies. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So we're not serving Jesus when we serve our own appetites, our own indulgences, or another word for it, our own addictions. We're not serving Jesus when we serve these areas of our lives, is what Paul is saying there. But our indulgences 
don't just impact us. They don't just affect us in our individual lives. They affect others around us. Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, this is important for, for, for what the discussion he's going to be building on here. He says, let us not pass judgment on one another, but decide, decide ahead of time not to put a stumbling block in front of somebody else. Now, remember the topic we're talking about is indulgence, overindulgence. And so he says, be careful. Think about other people in, in how you indulge. And all those areas I listed earlier, not just food, but what we think about, how we talk, the, the, the attitude we have, whether we're negative in our gossip, whether we're negative in our own minds about other people, whether we are consumed with politics or our discussion of, of certain areas, it affects people we don't even see or take notice of is a better word. He says, decide never. Now, that word never is very important too. Decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So you decide ahead of time that it will never happen. That takes intentionality. That takes purpose. Because if we don't decide ahead of time, our default will be to slip into that area of sin, that area of, of indulgence, that area of not going the route God would have us go. And so we need to decide ahead of time to not put a stumbling block in the way of somebody else. Verse 14, Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is un unclean in itself, but is un it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Now, he's, he's talking about a specific situation in, this is the book of Romans, to the people who lived in Rome, the Christians who lived in Rome. They had an issue because they were coming from a culture that worshipped fake gods. And a part of the worship of the fake gods is that they would take uh, food and they would offer it to these fake idols, the, these fake gods, these idols they had made. And then, because obviously the, you know, these fake gods are not real, they would take that food that they offered to the fake god and then they would, they would serve it up for whoever came over for dinner that night. Or they would take that food that they had offered to the fake god and they would take it to the market to sell. And these people who had come out of that culture, had gotten saved, had, had a big problem going to their friend's house and eating the food knowing the friend had sacrificed it to an idol. Or going to the market and buying from a specific seller knowing that person had offered that food to their idol that morning. Now, Paul's saying, there's nothing wrong with the food. It's food. The idol's not real. It doesn't contaminate the food. But Paul's saying, if this is a problem for you, remember he just said, don't create a stumbling block for somebody else. He said, this is a problem for you. You need to look out. Look at the next verse. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So he's saying, if you're a Christian, the people in Rome, and, and you've bought some of that food that's been sacrificed to idols and the, you're bringing Christians over who came out of that culture. He says, it's better not to eat that because it will mess them up spiritually. It's better to not even have it in your house. 
He says, you're not walking in love. You're not loving them. You're not helping them be spurred on because you're indulging in that thing. You, you may be okay with it, but because you're indulging in that thing, you're doing great damage to this other person who may never spiritually recover. I knew a guy. I told this story some years ago. I knew a guy uh, who was an alcoholic, but he didn't know it yet because he hadn't had a drink. He didn't know he was one. He didn't know he was addicted to that yet. But he went to dinner at a deacon's house, one of his best friends. And this deacon of this church, he, he had a glass of wine with dinner every night. And he knew his, he didn't know his friend struggled with this, but he knew his friend struggled and, and struggled spiritually in, in certain areas. And he brought out and had the glass of wine. The friend was there and the friend saw that and said, this guy's a deacon. It must be okay. It must be all right, all right, cool. And so he goes home and he tries alcohol. And he falls deep into that world. And he would get drunk consistently, not just on weekends, throughout the week. And when he got drunk, he would gamble. He had a wife and a son. He gambled away all their savings. He gambled away their house, their vehicles. And it's the epitome of that verse that we just read when he said, by what you eat, in this case, by what you drink, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. The decisions we make and we feel we're okay with and justified by making them have a profound impact on people around us, sometimes the small people in our very own house or our neighbors. And we may not realize it, but it can change everything. We have to decide ahead of time, like Paul already, we read a minute ago, we have to decide not to be a stumbling block. You say, oh, but you can't limit me, preacher. I'm going to go see the movies I want to see. I'm going to drink what I want to drink. I'm going to eat what I want to eat. Yeah, but what are the lasting ramifications you're going to leave behind you? What's the collateral damage spiritually that are going to be there? There was a movie I saw, I, I own the movie, it's uh, about the Alamo. My mom is a Texas history teacher, and so it, it, owning the Alamo is required uh, uh, growing up. Uh, but there's this one scene in the movie, Davy Crockett sitting around a fire with a couple of guys, um, with uh, uh, Bowie and Jim Travis, and they're sitting around the fire, and they're talking and Davy Crockett is famous. He's renowned for some of the feats he did uh, when he was younger. Then he went to Congress, and, and they wrote a play about him. He's still alive. They wrote a play about him, and it's these crazy things that he would do. It grew into this massive legend. So he's a living legend, and, and he's not even from Texas, but he brings some guys with him to go help the Texans fight for independence. And they're holed up in the Alamo, and they're surrounded. There's 300 of them in the Alamo. They're surrounded by 15,000 guys. Uh, with Santa Ana, and they're being, and Santa Ana's being reinforced by the thousands every day. And Davy Crockett, he says, you know, if it were just me, little old Daniel from the backwoods of Tennessee, I'd jump over that wall and take my chances, sneaking through the woods. But that Davy Crockett fella, those guys are watching him, watching everything he does. So I'm going to be here till the very end. We can never forget the footprint that we have in the lives of everyone around us. Your life touches another life. 
Their life touches another life. Their life touches another life. Their life touches another life. And we can never see the, the, the tendrils, the fingers of all those touches, how they reach out into the world and can change not just a generation, but the direction of the world. Some of you have heard the story of the shoe salesman who shared the gospel with a little kid in a Sunday school class. Kid gets saved, grows up to become this massive evangelist seeing thousands, hundreds of thousands of people saved. A little boy gets saved at one of his crusades. He goes on to become evangelist, and he sees thousands of people saved, so much so that they're going to bring him in to preach at this one revival. He can't show up, so he calls another evangelist buddy of his. That guy shows up and preaches. And who got saved at that revival? A little boy named Billy Graham, who grew up to see millions of people saved, tens of millions of people saved, all because one little guy that none of us know the name of, a shoe salesman, shared the gospel with a little kid. We don't know the impact we're going to have spiritually, generationally down the line, because of a decision you make today sitting on a green pew to follow Jesus, to listen to Jesus, to, to decide, I will not be a stumbling block. You know, Paul actually says in Corinthians, he says, in, in, he's describing this exact same scenario. He says, I would rather never eat meat again if it meant one more person went to heaven. Y'all ready for that commitment? We just came out of that no meat fast. Paul says, I would rather never eat it again if it meant somebody else getting into heaven. And so he says here, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Uh, verse, let's jump down to 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Paul's basically in that verse, he's saying, what's more important? Eating and drinking certain specific things or the, the righteousness, the salvation, the peace, the joy in the Holy Spirit. What's more important in your life and the lives of the people around you? What's more important, seeing your kids go to heaven? What's more important, seeing your neighbors go to heaven? What's more important, seeing your brother or sister or parents go to heaven than, than doing the things that might hinder them, that we're indulging in, the gossip that we spread around the dinner table, the things that we look at on social media? What, what, what's more important in the long run? Not just the, the satisfaction now, the attitude that we have, what's more important? Salvation, peace, and joy? Or indulging in that thing we ought not to be pursuing? Uh, verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, serving Christ in that way, you know, sacrificing in the name of Jesus. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace, and mutual upbuilding. He says, let us pursue what makes for peace, for what makes for peace, not just in our lives, but in the lives of others. Verse 20. So he, he says this again. He's, he's emphasizing this in a powerful way. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, talking about that food that they have there in Rome. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good to not eat meat or drink wine or do anything. That's the key. Do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Anything. Anything. Now, I know here in America, we don't like to give stuff up. If somebody 
you know, is offended by what you're doing. We say, man, that's, you need to get over it. You need to grow up and get over it. Deal with it, punk. Paul is, is thinking in a different light here. It, it's not good to do anything that would cause somebody else to stumble. It's not good. It's not good, he says. Basically, he's saying it's a sin. Not just for you, but in leading the other person away from God. It's a sin. But then Paul gives us a plan of action because you can see that and say, okay, it's not good to do anything that causes somebody to stumble, but it's easier said than done to give up the thing that, that, that I greatly desire, the thing I indulge in or overindulge in, the thing that I'm addicted to. Anybody who's ever been you know, openly addicted to something, it's hard to get away from it. it, it, it it's, it's like something takes over your body and, and you're diving right back in. Look what Paul says. Verse, uh, or flip back just to the end of the previous chapter, Romans 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and here it is, make no provision for the flesh. That's the sinful desire. That's the addiction. That's the, the indulgence. Make no provision for it. Make no plan for it to gratify its desire. The idea in that verse is almost put on Jesus, invite Jesus to come and be your weaponry to fight against planning to sin, planning to indulge, planning to, to give in to that area of our lives. He says, make no provision. That word means advanced planning. But by saying put on Jesus and then make no provision, he's saying that only Jesus can prevent our overindulgent, our, our uh, self-indulgent tendencies, our addictive tendencies. You know, self-discipline and willpower will only take you so far. We're susceptible to all kinds of things. We're susceptible to, if we're addicted to one thing, replacing it with something else that is equally as bad in the long run if we don't put on Jesus and allow him to pull us through. Because you can try all day long under your own power and your own steam, and I'm speaking from experience, it's going to not work. It may work for a minute. You may get it for a week and you feel good about yourself, but you get beyond that and it's going to crumble. If you don't have Jesus there holding you up and helping pull you through, it's not going to survive. You're not going to be able to continue for very long without Jesus bringing you through it. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. Now, some of you, I can see it on your faces, you're thinking, all right, he's talking about overindulging. He's talking about being addicted to stuff. Well, that's not me. You know, that's somebody else, right? That's, that's not me. Well, I don't know all of you, but I know a good chunk of you. And in my experience, everybody's addicted to something. In my experience, everybody indulges or overindulges in something. It doesn't have to be food. It doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. It can be anything that we plan our week around, we plan, we think about it, we're, we're consumed by it. Maybe it's, let me get stoned for this, maybe it's hunting. Some of y'all don't need to shake your, nod your head as vigorous as you just did. You're getting punished when you get home. If we overindulge in anything, well, let me say it this way. Let me, let me shake this up a little bit. The desire to indulge in and of itself 
is hardwired into all of us. Jesus put it there. He put it there. The desire to indulge, indulge in abundance. But the thing is, the enemy knows that. And so he does what he does best. He takes what God designed and he corrupts it and he perverts it and he, he redirects it into something else. You, you with me? Because here it is. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Let's see what he does with this. With this sinful, addictive, overindulgent behavior. Paul talks about that to explain a spiritual truth in Ephesians 5 verse 15. He says, look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. So he says, walk wisely and not unwisely. He says, when you walk wise, you'll make the best use of your time. So you make the best use of your time by being wise. Leading into this, this verse, verse 15, uh, 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he says, walk wisely, make the best use of your time. And if you do that, you will know what the will of God is. Verse 18. So he uses, again, an illustration of this indulgent behavior to, to teach us the truth. He says, so do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I know you all, again, use that word debauchery in everyday conversation. You probably said it 15 times before you got to church this morning. That word means recklessness. It means wastefulness. So he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that's wasteful. That, that, that's reckless. He says, rather be filled with the Spirit. And this verse, the way Paul designs some of his writing, this verse is parallel. So the end is parallel to the beginning. So do not get drunk with wine. He's saying, don't be filled with something that can control you that is not the Holy Spirit. Only ever always be filled with the Spirit and nothing else. If anything can control something you do, don't be filled with it. Except the Spirit. So this, this desire to indulge in something is God-designed, hardwired into who we are because we're supposed to indulge in abundance in Jesus. But the enemy seeks to distract us to indulge in anything else. Overindulge in anything else. We're supposed to indulge in abundance in Jesus. That's what we're meant to do. So we have this indulgent behavior, this addictive behavior in us because it's supposed to be tied to Jesus. But the enemy comes and he, he hijacks it and, and makes it latch on to something else. Makes it latch on to anything else. And says, no, don't, 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 you know, be indulgent in Jesus. Don't be overindulgent in Jesus. He'll, he'll convince you the Bible is boring. He'll convince you that something else is more important than spending time in prayer with Jesus. He'll convince you that something is more important than, than guiding your kids spiritually in, in, in every night. He'll convince you that you, you don't have time to get up early and spend time with the Lord. He'll convince you that that thing that you're driving, that, that, that you plan your entire week around as a family is more important. Not by a mental argument. He'll convince you with busyness. He'll convince you with just lining up your schedule so that you commit to this and this and this and this and you don't have time for Jesus because you didn't make it. Remember, we talked earlier, you have to be intentional. You have to make the decision ahead of time. Otherwise, we'll schedule Jesus right out of our lives. When we're meant to indulge in Jesus... What did he say? Be filled with the Spirit. 
And that's not like a one-time activity deal. Filling with the Spirit, it, 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 it's supposed to be a, a guiding uh, a way of life. You know, Paul tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Some people quote that, you know, when, when they are trying to look down on somebody else for eating, you know, pizza or ice cream. Well, my body's a temple. I don't know what you're doing with your body, but my body's way better than your body because I'm not eating that junk. And then they go home and eat the Hershey bar on their nightstand. But that's not what that verse was meant to be. When Paul said your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about everywhere you walk is holy ground because the temple's holy ground. And so if your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, it's filled with the Spirit. So everywhere you go, you represent Jesus. Everywhere you go, you're supposed to be guided by the Spirit. Everywhere you go, everything you do, everything that comes out of your mouth, every thought that comes in your head is supposed to be directed by Jesus. You say, well, mine's not. Well, mine's not either. (laughs) Because far too often, confessing time with the pastor, far too often I allow myself to be distracted by the enemy. And latch on that indulgence that is supposed to be directed at Jesus. Latch it on to something else. Latch it on to something else in my life. When it's supposed to be all about Jesus. We're not supposed to be so filled with anything else except the Holy Spirit. So if you were to examine your life right now, where is your indulgence aimed? You're you're, you're hardwired. You're you're the, the indulgent you know, thing that God put in you, where is it aimed? Consistently, regularly. Is it more often than not aimed at Jesus? Or is it aimed at picking out what's wrong with somebody else? Is it picking out why that person at the Capitol is not doing what you want? Is, is, it, is your indulgence uh, situated on gossip that you heard about so-and-so doing that other thing? Is your indulgence focused singularly on any other behavior in your life outside of Jesus? Something, actually, maybe it's something that, if taken in moderation, wouldn't be a bad thing. Food's not a bad thing. Food's amazing. Amen? Well, good food's amazing. Sometimes when you had not had food in a long time, anything's amazing. Uh, I remember I fasted one time for days and somebody in, in my fast ended uh, before I got home. This was a number of years ago. And a lady in the office was on a diet, and she had these rice cakes. And I ate that thing, and it was the best thing I've ever had in my life. Because I hadn't had food in a long time. But overindulgence is not meant to be directed at anything except Jesus. Anything except Jesus. And like we saw Paul say, it has to be a conscious decision to do it. And it's going to take effort, and it's going to take an investment of time, and it's going to take a a, a reliance on him so that when you begin to feel yourself being pulled in in an indulgent way in some other area, you need to say no. I'll tell you this morning, enemy was yanking at my brain all morning. And I said out loud, stop it, because he's relentless and he won't give up. He's been doing his thing for a long time. He's seen somebody like you before. He knows what buttons to push. He knows what temptations to throw. He knows how to distract your brain so you don't think it's him coming at you. Because if you see Satan coming at you physically, you're like, okay, there's Satan. I'm staying away from that deal. He's not going to come like that. He's going to come all sneaky. 
And he's going to be subtle, whispering things, and try to pull you in a way you don't need to be. And if you begin to think about it and focus on the Lord, you'll see, okay, that's him. Uh-uh. No, I'm not going not gonna to entertain that thought. I'm going to stay where God wants me to be. And it's not going to be easy. But it's going to be worth it. Will you follow after Jesus? Where is your indulgence aimed? Maybe today you need to be delivered from the thing you're indulgent upon. You need his help. You've been trying to do it yourself and you can't get out of it. And you need him to pull you out. Maybe that's you today where you're sitting there. You need to be filled, like he said there in Ephesians 5.18. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and stop filling yourself with that other junk that's messing you up and messing everybody up around you. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe today what you need to indulge upon is, is Jesus for the first time. Maybe today you've never believed in Jesus. You've thought about him. You know, you, you do Christmas and you go to church on Easter because your mama said to. Uh, and you go on Mother's Day, make mama happy. But you never believed actually yourself. Maybe today you saw those girls get baptized this morning who have believed in Jesus and you say, man, if they can do it, I can do it. And you need to believe in Jesus. Stop listening to the arguments of the enemy trying to pull you away from where Jesus would have you go. And you need to believe in him today and indulge in Jesus for the very first time and shut out all that other mess and go where Jesus would have you go. So that's the question I have. Will you believe in Jesus today? I heard a great illustration about that this morning. I was listening to this guy preach. And he was talking about Noah. And he said it's in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. God's telling Noah how to make the ark, the boat. God said, get all the wood, make the ark. And he says, cover it inside and out with pitch, with tar. But what's so funny about that, he said it, and I had to go look it up, and he's absolutely right. The word that's used there for cover it inside and out with tar is not the normal word for that. It's used about 70 some odd other times. It actually means atonement. Atonement. Atonement means it's the process of making us right before God. The process of our sins being wiped clean. And what's so significant about that with Noah is the flood represented God's judgment. And so by putting the, the tar on the inside and out of the ark, they were making it waterproof. Or judgment proof. Atoning, making right before God, healing our relationship, covering our sins, wiping them away. So that if you believe in Jesus, here it is, if you believe in Jesus, you are judgment proof. Judgment proof. You will not incur the wrath of God. Full stop. Because he has paid for your sins, all of them. Even the ones that you've been addicted to, even the ones you're scared to tell people about, they're gone and done away with if you believe in Jesus. He's got you covered inside and out with his protection. So will you believe today? Believe that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven. He rose from the dead 
so you can live after you die. Will you believe that? Because if you do, you're saved for all eternity. You've punched your ticket to heaven. That cannot be revoked. I was talking to somebody a couple days ago. They were wondering, how can I know that I'm saved? How can I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I'm going to heaven? I took her to a passage in, in John where Jesus is talking. And he said, it's when you, belief is like being wrapped in the hands of Jesus. And then having the hand of God wrapped around that. And I said, are you stronger than God to be able to pull his fingers off of you? He said, no. He said, then you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt. Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You believe that, you're saved for all time. All time. So when the enemy comes and whispers and says, no, you're not saved, you can say, yes, I am. Jesus has me, inside and out. Will you believe today in Jesus? Will you begin, if you are a believer, to redirect the things that you indulge in and begin to aim your in, indulgent muscle at Jesus? See, here's what's going to happen. In just a second, I'm going to pray. The music team's going to come. They're going to sing. And you have a decision to make. If you need to believe in Jesus for the first time, I want to talk to you and celebrate with you. You can come. I'll be right here at the front. I'd love to talk to you. Or if you feel weird or you can't walk down, you know, the aisle because of the incline, Jared, our associate pastor, will be right there in the back. You can go or come, and, and we'll talk to you and pray with you and celebrate with you. Maybe you want to get baptized like you saw this morning. We can set that up. Baptism declares to the world that you belong to Jesus. Maybe you need to put your life in the church where God has you here. Maybe what you need to do, actually, you need to come down here to this altar. You need to kneel down here, and you need to offer up to Jesus. Maybe you, you physically pull your hands out, and you offer to him the things that you have been indulgent in. Not that that will make it any more, you know, serious. You can do it there in your green pew, but maybe sometimes when we do something physically, it helps, it helps guide our, our bodies and our minds to doing the thing spiritually. Maybe that's what you need to come and do.